David Long is a journalist and non-fiction author, writing for both adults and children. His book of real-life survival stories, titled Survivors, illustrated by Kerry Hindman and published by Faber, won the Blue Peter Best Book with Facts Award. It was followed by two further books in the same series, Heroes and Rescue. David has also written several books for White-Eyed, including the Magnified series, Diary of a Time Traveller, When We Walked on the Moon, and When Darwin Sailed the Sea. Viewing David's backlist, you'll detect recurring themes and subjects, which include exploration, human achievement, a fascination with London, and an interest in eccentricity characterised perhaps by the title of one book, The Hats That Made Britain. Today we're going to be talking about one of his interests, cars and transport, and David's most recent book is called Magnificent Machines, published by Faber in November 2020. So David, welcome to In the Reading Corner and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So we're going to talk a little bit about your book, Magnificent Machines. Uh, but before we do that, I wonder if you can tell us how you made the journey towards writing for young people. I was a journalist for 25 years, which I enjoyed a lot. But most journalists at some point think about writing a book. And uh, eventually my chance came because I was asked to ghost write a book for somebody else. And uh, I quite enjoyed doing it. And, um, and it won an award. And after doing five or six books for other people, I thought I'd do one under my own name. And uh, that was a book for adults called Spectacular Vernacular, which was about eccentric architecture in London. And um, I eventually ended up writing a book about the Dickin Medal, which is the, the Animals VC. And indeed, that's what the book was called. And um, my agent looked at it and said, this could make quite a good book for children if it was it would have to be remodeled quite a lot because it was quite a large book and a dense book and a lot of it is not not happy reading and um, he put me on to another agent who does uh, children's books and between the two of us we came up with a plan to do a book about the important role of animals in war um, which is a major theme that goes back thousands of years and the result of that was Heroes, which you mentioned earlier. And um, I really enjoyed writing for a younger audience. And as significantly, it has to be said, I found I loved listening to children's questions, which were engaging and intelligent. Whereas often, if you write books for adults, nonfiction, often they're trying to catch you out. Whereas children, if they don't like your book, they just ignore your book. Adults, if they don't like your book, have to tell you why they didn't like your book. So I just found that I enjoyed writing for children and I enjoyed engaging with the readers. And um, that kind of set me off on a path, really. And now I've written far more books for children than adults. What so. a wonderful assessment that is of uh, <laughs> writing for young people. And uh, like you, I think children and young people, if they're allowed to, will ask you the questions that they really want the answers to. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I'm also amazed at how many of them ask me, how did you become a writer? What made you want to be a writer? And what do you like most about being a writer? Because when I was very, I mean, I've wanted to do this since I was a teenager. But when I was 10 or 11, I don't think I even knew authors existed. I just liked the stories. But a lot of young readers are fascinated by the process of producing a book. 
and they want to know how long it took to write, how long it took to get published, and all those questions which make you realise that they're thinking about this in a really interesting way, not simply about how good or bad the story is, but how the story came to be created. And I love all of that. Mm. Now, it's interesting there because you've mentioned the word story three or four times in, in, mm. in what you've just said. And we're talking here about nonfiction writing. But yes. what's evident to me is that you love the stories behind the things that you're writing about. And that's what you're conveying to your readers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably got something to do with 25 years as a journalist, because if you don't engage your reader fairly early on, you've lost them. You know, so that's the starting point. And then the other thing, um, I, I like trying to smuggle information in under the guise of entertainment. And I think that's also something which journalists learn and which children respond to. So if you take my book, Survivors, lots of people have said how inspiring those stories are. Uh, which is, I hope, true, because they show how ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things. But mostly they're stories which are really exciting. And even though you know the end, because I've called the book Survivors, um, it's interesting to see how they get there. And a lot of children enjoy the tension and the excitement and the gore, if it's kind of a gruesome story. But most of all, I want them to go away with a kind of factual basis of what happened there and how it happened and why it's remarkable that it should happen. Mm. So it's explaining things without anybody realising you're explaining things. Which is also really interesting because mm. you manage to do that to entertain your reader without resorting to what sometimes can be an overemphasis on the scatological as yeah. that's the yeah. only way to draw them in. But you treat your subject with a seriousness as well. Well, I do try to. And I think, you know, a children's story has to be relatively short, you know. So if you've only got 1,500 or 2,000 words for a story, you then really have to work out what are the important themes, which bits am I going to leave out, which am I going to put in? Because it's important that your representation is true and accurate, but at the same time, you can't sometimes get too bogged down in the nitty gritty in a way that you might do with an adult book. So my book about the Dickin Medal for grown-ups was, you know, an inch and a half thick and very dense because I wanted to say everything. Whereas for the children, you'll lose them if mm. you present a story in that form. Mm. Do you think in a sense that having written for children, if you go back and write for adults, there are things that you've learned that would inform your writing for adults? Yes, I think it does a bit because you have to have a simpler sentence construction, uh, for example. And sometimes you realise that's actually a better sentence. You know, quite often, um, if I look at some of the first books I wrote, I'd probably do it differently now because if you're writing for children, clarity is much more important. So, it, yes, it does inform it in that, in that way. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're going to get onto your book in a moment. But before we do that, looking at your uh, at the body of your writing, I was intuiting that you probably maybe naturally enjoy writing about the things that interest you. Yes, so definitely. just writing affords yeah. you the opportunity to follow your passions. It does absolutely, because very often I'm writing the kind of books I like to read. And on a couple of occasions I've written them because they haven't existed. And uh, that's also very exciting. So mm. I don't think I've ever written a book 
about the subject that doesn't appeal to me. And um, and I suppose the trick is to find something that appeals to me and hopefully thousands of other people. So if we come to Magnificent Machines, yeah. um, you've written several books that are not necessarily about Magnificent Machines, but they do connect in some way. See, I think you've written about Henry Ford and about classic cars. And mm. a great book with the title Blood, Sweat and Tires. That's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> so I wondered whether these machines are a lifetime interest or is it one that you've acquired more recently? No, they're, they're a lifetime interest. As a child, I was extremely interested, probably tediously interested in cars and aeroplanes. Then when I learned to drive, I realised, oh, I can have a car, whereas I can't have an aeroplane. So the cars took over a bit. And for much of the 25 years as a journalist, probably three quarters of what I did was writing about cars. Um, so I've driven thousands of cars and written about thousands of cars. So it was this book revisits childhood passions in a way. So they're not all cars and aeroplanes, but as you've seen, there's a lot of that in there. So, yeah, they, these things are still things which interest me a lot. Mm-hmm. And I would like other people to be interested as well, because I think it's very easy to find cars boring, for example, or trains boring. But actually, if you look at them in the right way, they're thrilling. So you've selected 32 machines, I think it is, and you've written mm. about them chronologically. And we yeah. start with the Benz motor wagon and yes. come, is it a PAL V or PAL 5? PAL 5, PAL 5. Okay, I should know, but I wasn't <laughs> sure. Um, I'm interested to know how you made your selection. Well, there's a lot to answer there. I've shaken hands with two of the 12 men who walked on the moon. So the Saturn V's in there straight away. And I remember 1969 reasonably well. Most of the cars I've been lucky enough to drive, so they had to go in there. Um, I'm not mad about certain machines. I don't, not terribly interested in lorries, for example. And although I don't know much about ships, when you see the world's biggest ship or the world's biggest warship, if you're the kind of person I am, it's impossible to not want to go scurry off and research that. And then you find as you're writing, you think, oh, maybe I am interested in ships. So I just find mostly... The cars are either an archetype of a certain kind, so the most expensive car or the first car or the fastest car or something, all quite obvious things, or they're just items which you think, if they were better known, they'd be genuinely iconic. So the largest airship, you know, is now nearly 100 years old, but it's still the largest moving object ever made. I just find that an incredible thought, that it would literally fill the sky. So So that's the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg, yeah. I just, you know, they're... I find it impossible not to be interested in these things, I suppose. Were there any that uh, were on your wish list but didn't make it to the final selection? Yes. I didn't want too many military vehicles because ultimately, whether they're on the right side or the wrong side, they are designed to kill people. So although there are a couple in there because certain military machines definitely change the course of history. You know, the Harrier jump jet, which in one way is a you know fighter aircraft designed to shoot other airplanes down. It's also very clever because it can take off vertically and that kind of thing. So there probably were a few which um, I would like to have considered, but on reflection decided no. Mm. I, I wonder if we could talk about uh, a couple of favourites. So I, I'm going to tell you one of my favourites first and then maybe I'll ask you to pick one of yours too. Yeah. Um, I was really pleased to see Concorde in there. Yes. Uh, I think it's one of the most elegant uh, flying machines ever to be produced. But I remember 
I, I, I lived in northwest London when I was growing up. Yes. And I remember our teacher taking us out onto the playground. Yes. To witness Concord's maiden flight. And we all yes. tried to listen for the sonic boom. Yes. And that's still such an important yes plane yeah. in my imagination oh, I, think it, <laughs> I think it is certainly for i'm 59 so anybody of my generation definitely and interestingly i'd actually booked a flight on concord and was meant to be going two days after the paris crash so after that of course i never went on it and uh, my fiance has and doesn't miss an opportunity to tell me um i have however been i've flown in a spitfire which is considerably rarer and I'm very pleased about that, and I love doing that. But there's no doubt at all that one of my machine-related regrets is that I didn't get to go on Concorde. So um, you mentioned the Saturn V. Why yeah. did you put that in rather than, say, one of the Apollos? No, well, the Saturn took the Apollos to the moon. Ah, so right, in, OK. In the, in the nose cone, you've got all the little bit that went to the moon. So that is the crucial thing with me. I think the uh, you know space shuttle's fantastic, but... Um, I still like the fact that the Saturn V is the biggest, most powerful rocket ever, because it still is. And I'm going to be really quite sad when eventually one of the rocket companies now produces something which is bigger. It won't be better because in our lifetime, for me, there's nothing that's going to match putting a man on the moon. You know, I just think it's such an extraordinary thing. And the Saturn is such a significant part of that. It was so much bigger and more complicated than any machine which had ever been made before. And um, it's incredible that 50, nearly 51 years after um, Buzz Aldrin was on the moon and um, Neil Armstrong, that the present crop of rockets still aren't a rival for it. You know, that's an amazing, it's an amazing thought to me. Three million components, imagine that. Um, I just find it, you know, it sends a shiver down my spine just to think about that. Wow. While you mentioned three million components, mm. one of the things that I really appreciated actually in your writing is the detail. Uh, but I wonder whether you're obsessed by detail too. Uh, I'm absolutely not obsessed by detail, um, but I think it's important. And the trick is to put enough of it in to make people think, wow, and not enough that they get bored or that it bogs down the narrative. Um, we've all of us read a book at some time where whether it's fiction or non-fiction where the author's so determined to tell you everything he or she knows and you're thinking yes get on with the story get on with the story yeah. so you know i probably there probably is an enormous book about saturn five that lists everything to do with it but somewhere along the line you have to think um this is a human story and so i don't want to get too bogged down in widgets you did entice me by saying that you've driven most of these cars and now you've got me, my mouth watering, just wondering which cars you've been in. Can you, can you tell us one of the cars in this book that you've actually had the opportunity to drive? Yeah, the, the 250 GTO, which is, whether it's the most valuable car in the world, a Ferrari, is impossible to say because cars sometimes change hands and you don't really know about it or a particularly rare car has never been offered for sale, so who knows what it would fetch. But the highest prices ever paid on the open market for motor cars are all Ferrari 250 GTOs. There's only 30 odd of them and um, I've driven three. So I'm quite happy with that. And driving the third one was not more boring than driving the first one. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask you, machines uh, are often seen to be the preserve of a man's world. When you were 
writing this book, were you aware that there were more women involved in the world of machines? Yeah, I think I was. When I spent 25 years writing about cars, to begin with, most of the women I knew were honestly not that fussed about what their car was as long as it started in the morning. And by the time I finished, I had a lot of female friends who were not interested necessarily in how their car worked or whatever, but the car they drove had become quite important to them. And also writing about the motor industry for so many years, there were honestly as many women involved in the industry as a whole as there were men. You know, there may well have been more men on the shop floor, I don't know. But in the office end of the motor industry, I met as many women as men. So I I kind of am aware of that. And uh, I think it's important to stress that as well in a funny sort of way. Otherwise, from the author's point of view, otherwise the machines might look just like boring boys' toys. And, um, And they're not really. These machines are world-changing. I used to find it quite frustrating if people used to go, God, cars are so boring. What is there to say? And you say, well, it's not really about the cars. It's about the way they change the world. You know, the Model Mm -hmm. T Ford put the world on wheels. It was as revolutionary as a steam engine, more so in many ways. So I think by remembering that these things impact on everybody's lives and are interesting to a lot of people. You know, I'd be very sad, for example, if this is a children's book, if parents in bookshops thought, well, we'll definitely buy that for Johnny, but we won't buy it it for Jemima. Because Mm -hmm. I think and hope that Jemima might be just as interested and Jemima might, you know, grow up to design the next Saturn. You know, who knows? So I think it's important that they're not seen as just niche or sectional interests because you don't need to be car mad to find the motor industry and cars interesting you don't need to be mad about space to marvel at what was achieved by um, putting a man on the moon Uh, there are a couple of really nice stories actually in your book featuring women one of them is with the bents uh Oh, yeah. yes i love that story about the the brakes tell us about that Well, Ben's wife took the car for a, for a drive, I mean, to go and see friends or family. And um, the brakes didn't really work very well because everything was totally experimental in those days. And um, it was her idea to put leather pads onto the wooden blocks. And that worked. And that was the beginning of effective brakes. And also when a fuel line became blocked, she unblocked it with a hat pin. So that was a genuine advance because if you think about the first ever car, it could have been an invention that just died because the first one wasn't very good. And so everybody could have just turned away from it. And so it was important that you can see that this has some potential to survive and, and, and thrive. And I think the fact that it was Frau Benz as well as Hair Benz becomes quite an important thing because then again, it looks like something which everybody might be interested in. Mm. So many of the stories are about the biggest, the best, the fastest. And one that stands out um, is the Gossamer Albatross, yeah, which yeah. seems to look backwards to earlier attempts at flight rather than forwards in so well, many ways. It does not it doesn't. I mean, obviously structurally it does because it's effectively a man-powered glider, but it used some quite advanced materials. And also it's the most ecological journey ever made by an aeroplane because a man pedalled across the channel. So, you know, I remember that one quite well. I also like the contrast with it because 
it's round about the same time as the fastest plane ever made. So who doesn't like that? This is the slowest plane ever made. But I know what you mean. It is, it is retro, but at the same time, it's eco. So I thought that was, you know, I quite like the idea of that. And I think from a young, re young reader's point of view, most of the readers can probably ride a bike. Imagine pedalling an aeroplane across the channel. What's not to like about that? Yeah, it's a sort of ET moment. It's it is, uh, it amazing. Yeah, no, that's nicely put. It is. <laughs> Did you think, um, as as you were doing the research for this, that some of it was uh, showing the vainglorious as well as the oh, marvellous? Yeah, absolutely. I think whilst um, I love cars, I don't find motor racing very interesting at all. But it's very easy to say this is... Racing teams always insist that racing improves the breed, so it leads to improvements in the cars we drive, which it does to a much smaller extent than it used to be. But no, I think there's a lot of vainglory in there. And um, some of the machines in this book are quite practical and have a job to do. And some of them are showing off. For mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're worthless because, you know, technological advances are a thing in themselves. But there is an aspect to that. And in fact, although I put the most expensive car in there, um, I don't really like the fact that nowadays people are likely to look at a 250 GTO and think that's the most expensive car rather than that is a remarkable machine. So when I wrote the Henry Ford book, for example, um, the Model T Ford wasn't fast, wasn't particularly sophisticated, but it revolutionised everything. Mm. Um, you know, Henry Ford famously was not a fan of market research. And he said, because if I asked people what they wanted before designing the Model T, they'd have said, build me a faster horse. And so he really was thinking outside the box. And a lot of machines do that. So although in a way you can appeal to a young audience by saying this is the biggest one ever or the fastest one or whatever, I've tried to stress in here what makes them remarkable other than that. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about the writing. Um, mm. I have an observation which may or may not be true, but your writing has a kind of classic non-fiction tone, which reminds me quite a bit of the books uh, that I read when I was younger, where the writer had a real voice that came through. And I think, uh, from reading lots of non-fiction as a teacher over many years, that mm -hmm. we've been through a period where the writing has been rather bland. I think we're coming out of that now. Right. Um, whether that's something that you um, have observed or, or noticed uh, at all. Well, um, I'm very pleased to hear you say that, but I have to say that I don't know that because, or rather I've got your word for that, because until I started writing children's books, I hadn't really thought about them for years. And when it comes to my own writing, I wouldn't say it's effortless, but I just sort of write in the way I write. And fortunately, some people like that. So I think I'm lucky in that regard. And I'm also lucky because other people who know much more about the children's book market than I do have said this is a bit of a golden era for children's nonfiction. So maybe I arrived at the right time and the style I write in kind of fits. So I have one. I have one last question for you, actually, yes. and yeah. uh, I, I want to kind of project ourselves into the future and to hazard a bit of a guess. Mm. Um, what do you think uh, would the next great or magnificent machine could be that hasn't yet been invented? Crikey! I don't know. Two things, I suppose. One is the Pal V, the flying car, 
Um, that could be one of them because we've been promised flying cars since I was about seven and we still don't really have one. So that one could come actually to fruition and people might buzz around the skies. I think that's quite hard to imagine, but that one might happen. Um, and then beyond that, I really don't know what the next machine will be. Although I do think there's going to be something which is quite scary about human machine interfaces. So whether the most amazing machine of the next 20 years is going to be replacement limbs that function like real ones. Do you know what I mean? That kind I of thing. I do. We're um, getting into the whole cyborg kind yes, of Yes, I think so because in a certain way planes can get aeroplanes can get cleaner, that's for sure. Um I don't know how much safer they can get and I don't know what point there is actually in making go much faster, which is one of probably one of the reasons why there hasn't been a replacement Concorde. And um, and the same with cars. We need cars which are cleaner and smaller. But I think we're looking at evolutionary improvements rather than something revolutionary. And it's the same thing if you look at super tankers that might have might have sails, so they use less oil. Again, that's kind of evolutionary. And I'm just not enough of a visionary to come up and guess something completely new that no one's thought of yet. So I think the Development I'm most looking forward to, though not without trepidation, is this kind of cyborg thing. Wow, fascinating. And mm. it has been a fascinating conversation, David. I feel I could talk to you for hours, but well, let, let's do it again. Let's, <laughs> let's do it when there's a net on the when there's a next book, that would Thank be great. You. Thank you so much for taking My time pleasure. out today to uh, talk to us in the reading. I've enjoyed corner. it. Thank you very much, Nikki. <laughs> Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.